0: Well, I want to continue and actually wind up this series called I Am. We've been focusing on the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospels. He said I Am, and he meant something so powerful by it that we need to get hold of it. And uh, I I want to demonstrate something on the whiteboard here that I hope will cause this not only to make sense, but will cause it to come, come kind of crashing in on your life in a really powerful way. And uh, let's, just, uh, let's just make a division between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? And in the Old Testament, one example, Moses said, you know, when God was calling him to go, to the, uh, go to, into Egypt to set the Israelites free, he said, well, who, who, who am I supposed to say sent me? And he said, tell him I am. I am sent you. And the most popular rendering of that Hebrew word is Jehovah, Jehovah. Uh, a better rendering is Yahweh, but the, most, the one that's most widely known is Jehovah. And so this was the name that God gave himself in the Old Testament. And then from that we see in various parts of the, of the Bible in the Old Testament that God uh, revealed himself through his name by adding like a suffix, if you will, after Jehovah. Those of you who have been through our discipleship training know this. You've been over this ground. But uh, Hebrew words uh, like uh, Jehovah Rapha, for example, is the Lord who, is, who heals. I am the God who heals you. Uh, Jehovah Yira is uh, the provider. And uh, Jehovah Shalom is God is peace. You got it, okay? And you can go right around this thing and find uh, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, and that means that he goes out before us in war, that you're not in this alone, but you're, you're part of a mighty army, and the Lord is your banner. Uh, Jehovah-Rohi, for example. I'm just working from memory here. Some of you will have to help me when I start running out. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Jehovah-Mekadesh is uh, the Lord is my righteousness, right? Yeah. jehovah Shama, the Lord is here. So these are examples, and there are more, of the Old Testament, the ways that God reveals himself to us through his name. And he says, I am Jehovah, I am the healer, I am the provider, I am your peace, I am your banner, your protection. Um, And you can go around, and what I want you to make sure you understand is that God didn't reveal this for us just so we'd know and go, oh, well, that's what God is. But I believe that the major purpose of the revelation of God in his name is to show us his intent toward us. Is to show us his intent. Is that God intends to be your healer. God intends to be your righteousness. God intends to be your peace in the midst of turmoil. God intends to be your shepherd. And so in the Old Testament, it's not just, oh, let's learn these names so that we can, you know, think we know something more about God, but it has a very practical application. Now when we come to the New Testament and Jesus who comes as God in the flesh, this, of course, in, the, in Hebrew means I am, right? What does Jesus say? He says I am, right? <laughs> and that's what we've been looking at, I am. I am, and he started by saying I am God. I am God. And he didn't apologize for it, he made the audacious statement that he is God. He was sent from the Father, but he's God as the Son. And he's as much God as the Father is, or as much God as the Holy Spirit is. He's God. And so what we've been looking at is we've been looking at the other things that he said as I am the light of the world, right? Yes? Talk to me, people. Okay, I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd we've seen. Last weekend, uh, we saw... I am uh, willing, right? And God said, I'm willing. Uh, We could go on. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus said these things. And all of these things uh, that Jesus said, I am, are the same as the Old Testament. Not only resurrection. Not only are they meant to reveal the nature of God, but by showing these character qualities of God, they're meant to show his intent toward us. Correct? What God intends, what God desires in terms of a relationship with us. That he wants to be our light, that he wants to be our gate that moves us from death to life. That he wants to be our shepherd. That he is willing that we should always approach the Lord uh, uh, assuming that he's willing That he is our resurrection in our life. And so, you know, I want to wind up this series today, although we haven't done all the I am statements. I just want to move on with one more I am. But I want you to get this, that the whole reason for this has been to show you from the Bible that God intends this powerful, dynamic relationship with you. Not to be a God far off that you just know about, but he, he desires to engage us in these realities. Make sense? Say yes or I'll start the whole thing again. All right. You know better not to answer me, right? I can make this last as long as you want, right? You're too polite to leave, so. Well, today I'd like to wind this series up. We may come back someday to these other I Am statements. They're so powerful and so life-giving. But today, by focusing on Jesus' words when he said, I am the bread of life, I am The bread of life. And so go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, that's in the New Testament. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. John chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 35. This morning, as you're turning there, let's take a minute to establish the context of the passage. Because that's so important. If you're going to get Bible study right, you've got to take time to establish the context. And this is in John But it's not the argument part of John. Remember when the first four messages of this series, we were a little later on in the Gospel of John. He was arguing, so there was this thing going on. This is not that context. This is before that argument. And so I define this or describe this context as it's a teaching moment. Something has just happened, and Jesus seizes the opportunity as a teaching moment. You know, you you have that with your kids every now and then? Okay, now do you see why you weren't supposed to put your tongue in the light socket or whatever? You know, it's a it's a teaching moment that you don't want to let slip by. And that's kind of what's happening. I think that's substantially what's happening here in our passage in John chapter 6. Because in, uh, in John chapter 6, uh, previous, just prior to this, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish. And so... He, He just performed this this amazing miracle by feeding them with the bread. And so he's about to say, I'm the bread of life. The other thing that he did was, you know, he finished that and he sent his disciples on ahead. And he decided, well, I need to catch up with them. No boat, no problem. I can walk on water. And so Jesus walked on water to catch them and ultimately arrive at the other side of the lake. So Jesus and his disciples are on the other side of the lake, having fed the 5,000, having walked on water now the crowds are catching up. And their first question is, how'd you get here, Jesus? That's where we pick it up, John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him, they being the crowd, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but you, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Because when you ate from my table, something really good happened. He says, you're not looking, at me because, looking for me because I can walk on water. You're looking for me because you ate from my table and it was good. And my bread satisfied you in a way you've never been satisfied. It's a crazy thing about the bread of Jesus, though, isn't it? Because it's both satisfying and addicting all at the same time, right? You get a good meal with Jesus and you go, that was nice. When can we do it again? He said you'd come for that reason. Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, meaning Son of Man, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Then they asked Him... What must we do to do the works God requires? Common question. That's the human condition. What do we have to do to impress God? Jesus answered back, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That at the core, the essential core of our lives as Christians is not work. It's rest. It's believing restfully, trusting in Jesus. It's believing So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Have these people not been paying attention? (laughs) Jesus just fed 5,000 and walked on water. And they say, so what are you going to do? What miraculous sign are you going to perform so that we can know it's you? And then then they, they play this trump card. Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know, so what they're saying is like, you know, Moses. ah, Moses, he gave us manna. He gave us food. That was a great miracle. Walking on water. Sure, you fed 5,000, but you started with the loaves and the fish. Moses, he started with nothing. And he fed us. So they're making this comparison, so Jesus jumps in. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. It's like, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. It was your Father in heaven. It was, don't put your faith in a man. Any man ever. We're all the same. (laughs) There are no exceptions. Every man, every woman is a sinner. Do not put your faith in a man. Jesus said, Moses didn't get you that. That came from your father. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. To whom you suppose he was referring? Himself. He's like, and that would be me. I have come to do what then? I have come down from heaven to give life to the world. Sir, they said, From now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. It's a powerful statement. That Jesus has something for us that will satisfy us for all eternity. And that up in verse 27, that Jesus has for us a kind of food that will actually prepare us for eternity. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So the significance of this, I think I need you to follow me through a three-step logical argument. Three steps. It's kind of like a syllogism, but not really. It's two two points and then a conclusion. And uh, I think it's the best way to explain what this passage means in a way that we're going to get the significance of what the Holy Spirit has for us today. And the first point is this that as the bread of life, Jesus provides the fulfillment of the Father's heart. Jesus is the bread of life. And by being the bread of life, he provides the fulfillment of the Father's heart. The Father, the first person of the Trinity, has a heart for humanity, has a heart for you. And Jesus, as the bread of life, fulfills that. This is the first part of this logical argument I want to make for you. That Jesus as the bread of life, by being the bread of life, fulfills the heart of the Father for you. I think a lot of times when we look at the Old Testament, we say that Jesus primarily fulfilled the heart of the Father by fulfilling a variety of prophecies, which is true. There are literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about where Jesus is going to be born, that talk about the life Jesus will live, the character he will have, the ministry he will perform, that he will die on a cross, that he will rise from the dead, and that he will come again. And the Old Testament is filled with these prophecies. Every one of these prophecies is perfectly met in Jesus of Nazareth. That's how we know it's him. And so I think many times we think that The substantial way in which Jesus met the heart of the Father was by fulfilling all the prophecies. But there's another way that he met them that's important for us to think about this morning. And the other way in which Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of the Father's heart was in the fulfillment not only of the prophecies of the Old Testament, but also in the fulfillment of the many typologies of the Old Testament. Say typology. And by typology, here's what we mean. We mean that there's something that happened in the Old Testament that was a type of Jesus. It wasn't Jesus, but it set the foundation so that when Jesus came, he perfectly fulfilled that, not by fulfilling prophecy, but by his very being and his actions, he actually completed what started in the Old Testament. And so this reflects the Father's heart for all the, all the generations. You tracking? So the Father has a heart for us, heart for his people, a heart for humanity, which was started in the Old Testament. And there are, there are dozens of aspects of the Old Testament which actually serve clearly as typologies so that when Jesus came in the flesh, God incarnate, came to earth in the flesh, that he fulfilled that typology. And the bread was one of those things. Let me give you an example. One was the Paschal Lamb or the, the, the Passover Lamb. The lamb that was slain for the sacrifices of the people of Israel every year. And how many thousands of lambs were slain? Their blood was shed on the altar so that the the sins of the people of Israel could be forgiven. Well, then Jesus comes, as, as John describes, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, who fulfills all of that typology. The lamb is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Christ in the New Testament perfectly fulfills that, so that is no longer necessary. That's an example of a typology. Other examples, there are dozens, but some of the more popular ones would be Adam. Adam, we were introduced to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, and he's a perfect man. He's a perfect man as he's created, and he's created what in the image? In the image of God. So he is literally a house for God. But then sin comes, breaks that, and so there's just a fragment of the Imago Dei, the image of God left in a man. So that's our problem. That's our condition into which we're born. But Jesus comes, and Paul says in Romans and 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the perfect Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. And so there's a type type of Christ in Adam. You can go on. You get to Genesis 14, and you have this guy. He's called the, the priest of Melchizedek. Melchizedek the priest. And this guy, what does he do? This was way before Moses. This was way before any kind of covenant relationship with God through the law. This was way before that. It seems like Abram had just like conquered somebody or rescued somebody or something in Genesis 14. And what happened was Melchizedek came from Salem, which is the town that later became Jerusalem. Catch this, all right? So Melchizedek comes long before Jesus, long before the law, long before the Passover. And what does he bring to Abram? He brings bread and wine. And he comes from Jerusalem bringing bread and wine. And this is a type of Christ. You get to Genesis chapter 22. I think we'll do the whole Bible this morning. You get to Genesis chapter 22. And what do you have? You have Abraham who is called to sacrifice his son Isaac on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, his only son. Hello! Is this dawning on anybody that that could be a type of Christ? It's not Christ, but it sets all The scene for Christ. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days. Jesus said, As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. A type of Christ. This is a lot more fun up here than it is out there. The tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament. The tabernacle was like the, the precursor of the temple. It was a tent temple it was like a pop-up trailer you know for the for the israelites to have church and 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 it was the precursor and the, the the tabernacle and ultimately the temple became the place where it was believed that god dwelt and where god met his people Now we come all the way to Jesus, and in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, it says we don't need a temple anymore. We don't need a tabernacle, because Jesus is our temple. He's not only our high priest, but he's the place where we meet the Father. And Jesus said, what do you need? you need to go to a certain place? He says, no, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am so there. That's what Jesus said. So you see what I'm saying so far? Typologies of the Old Testament perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, show the heart of the Father all along. Now the one I want you to think about most is manna. Manna. Remember anybody get to Exodus yet? Really? I thought more of you would have made it to this. Second book of the Bible by now. <laughs> Exodus, chapter 16. Yeah. Murmuring Israelites wandering around in the desert and they say, Moses, Moses, we have nothing to eat. So Moses feels to God, and God causes it to rain down food from heaven. That was called manna. Manna. And it was a provision from God. And now we come to the New Testament, because this is a type of Christ. Now we come to the New Testament, and we get to our passage again in John chapter 6. He says, I, I tell you the truth in verse 32. It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said, "I'm I'm the new manna." Jesus says, "I'm the true manna. It's me that you want. It's me that the manna was meant to represent." That Jesus as the bread of life, then, is the fulfillment of a typology which says that Jesus as the bread of life is the expression of the Father's heart for you. Are you getting this? This is the first part of the little syllogism. You've got to get this part. The rest isn't going to make any sense. The Father's heart can be seen in the fulfillment of these typologies. And look at the rich comparisons between the manna and Jesus I mean, first of all, the manna was a miraculous provision from God, right? And it wasn't that they wouldn't make their own food. They were on the move. They couldn't sow and reap. They couldn't grind. They could not provide food for themselves. And so God miraculously, richly provided this for them. Now take it over to our side of the formula. Jesus, as the true manna... We cannot provide a redemption. We cannot, we don't have the capacity to provide for our forgiveness. And so Jesus, as the true manna comes, as the old manna came as a miraculous provision of something that they could not provide for themselves, Jesus comes as a miraculous provision of something that we cannot provide for ourselves. We need Jesus as the true manna. Think of the old manna, the first manna, as an expression of God's immeasurable love for his people. Why do you suppose God gave them the manna? Because he loved them. Do you know that's why they were the Israelites? The Bible says, God did not choose you, Israelites, in the Old Testament, God did not choose you because you were great or because you were more numerous. That in fact, you were the smallest. But God chose you because he loved you. And so the manna was an expression of God's immeasurable love. Jesus, the bread of life, the fulfillment of the typology, is an expression of God's immeasurable love. The manna was a daily provision. If you read Exodus 16, you know that they were commanded to collect enough manna for one day. And some of them didn't do it, right? Mm-hmm. What happened? Maggots. Next morning, yucky manna. Okay? Because it was a daily provision. It created a relationship of perpetual dependence on God. It had to be renewed every day. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is a daily provision. It is not enough to be able to say, I once signed a card that said, Yes, Jesus, come into my heart. It is not enough to say, Yes, I was once baptized. Being a Christian, Means living in the dynamic of a daily relationship with Him, abiding in Him. It's renewed every day. He gives you enough for one day. You're going to need it again tomorrow. Even in the name, the Old Testament, manna. Does anybody remember what that word meant? What is it? They called it manna because they didn't know what it was. And so they went, manna. Okay. What is it? What is it? Now we get to the New Testament manna, Jesus. And what's the Gospel of John so much about? About debating the identity of who Jesus even is. It's like, oh, you're the bread from heaven? Well, who are you? The comparisons are so rich, but I just wanted to start with this idea that as the bread of life, Jesus provides the fulfillment of the Father's heart. Second, as the bread of life, Jesus satisfies the deepest desire of his own heart. So the Father's heart is fulfilled in Jesus as the bread of life, and Jesus' own deepest desire is to be the bread of life for you. Wouldn't you just really love to know what Jesus really wants? Say yes. yes. Help me. Then look at Luke chapter 22. He told us. told us exactly what he wanted, what he eagerly desired. That's something I want to know. I, just, I never forgot this. I remember reading this for the first time as a very young man and i just never forgot jesus it's just rung in my mind luke chapter 22 you look at verse 14 this is jesus about ready to eat the last supper the passover supper with his disciples and in verse 14 it says when the hour came jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them i have eagerly desired to eat this passover with you before i suffer jesus said i have eagerly desired I mean, there's a difference between desiring and eagerly desiring, yeah? Well, he said, this is the one place where Jesus said, I eagerly desired to do this, to eat this Passover with you. Why? Well, keep reading, you'll see. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jump down to verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, Everything's about to change. You've been eating bread. You've been eating bread made by human hands. And he says, now you're about to eat my flesh. Because I am the bread. I am the bread of heaven. I am the fulfillment. And it's my desire to be this for you. And I think we have to to add to the fact that as bread of life, Jesus provides the fulfillment of the Father's heart. We have to add that as the bread of life, Jesus satisfies the desire of his own heart. And here's my third statement, which I mean for you to conclude as a result of the first two. As the bread of life, it is God's clear intention to personally indwell us and eternally sustain us. Get that. If, the, if bread of life is the f- fulfillment of the Father's heart, if bread of life is the deepest desire of Jesus' heart, then we have to come away with this understanding that as the bread of life, the clear intention of God is to come and indwell you. Not to be a God who's far off. Not to be a God who's to be worshipped in a religious way, but to be experienced in a bread way. Who worships bread? I mean, do you sit around going, Oh, Panera! (laughs) Do you do that? You think about it. You think about Panera, Sally, but then you go! You go and you experience the Panera! Panera! And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm not far off to be worshiped in a religious way like you, and our hearts are inclined to do. He said, your worship is but rules made up of men. Jesus said, out, of lips, off, his own, out of, off his own lips. He said, but your hearts are far from me. But in, John, in this passage in John 6, 35, Jesus said, he said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus desires to indwell you, to be inside you. In Acts chapter one, verses four through eight, there's that amazing account of the risen Jesus. He had just risen from the dead, and the disciples were trying to figure out what, what to do next. And in verse four, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, that's Jesus. I think it's cool that he ate with them. He gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. What could that gift be? The Holy Spirit. He said, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I understand that question on one level, but it just seemed like the disciples asked so many dumb questions along the way that I've just taken up the sort of spot where when I hear him speak, I just listen, <laughs> just try to listen. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He said, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what God wants to do to you. He wants to indwell you by the Holy Spirit. It's not a distant relationship. When I look at this thing about Jesus being, listen, when I look at this about Jesus being the bread of life, I come to the conclusion that it is God's clear intention to create with us a relationship of perpetual dependence, perpetual dependence. It's the opposite of how we normally think of maturity. We think of maturity in the human sense that as you mature, you become more independent, correct? Well, I can take care of myself. I can do that by myself. I don't need help. And the Christian perspective is exactly upside down. That as the bread of life, Jesus says, I want, I want to create with you a relationship of perpetual dependence so you're always dependent upon me so that every aspect of your life is surrendered to me, given to me, dependent upon me. I know that I need Jesus more in his shed blood. I need it now more than ever. I don't know about you, I don't know about you, but I need, I need the shed blood of Jesus in my life now more than ever. It wasn't just about needing, realizing I was a sinner and needing the shed blood of Jesus so that I could be forgiven and set for heaven. I, like everybody I know, came to that place or who has come to that place, has never walked out the next days perfectly. And so I need, I need the shed blood of Jesus now as much as ever. I need to renew that mercy every day in my life. Maybe I need it more now because now I know better. Back then I was just stupid. I was ignorant to the reality that I was even offending God. But now that I know, and yet in my weakness continue to do, I think I need the blood of Jesus more now than ever and it's created a dependence, relationship of dependence. So, so do you see the progression of this logic? Tell me Yes. That it's the Father's heart, bread of life, to be bread of life for you in Jesus. That that was all Jesus really wanted to do, was be bread of life for you. That the opportunity then is to enter into this relationship of dependence where he indwells us, feeds us, nourishes us, sustains us for eternity. You see the moment that this creates? creates? It creates the demand of a response from every person in the room. Because if there are people here today, and I hope there are, who have not yet come to the place of knowing Jesus as Savior, it creates an, a window of opportunity for you to enter into that relationship of dependence on Jesus as your Savior, as the sustainer, the forgiver, and Lord of your life. Because He wants to indwell you. It's not just about coming and acknowledging, you died on a cross for me, you, you rose from the dead. Great, thanks so much but it's about being embraced by this Savior, indwelt by this Savior. And it's likely that some of you are right now in a place where you're recognizing that and you're recognizing that you need need to come to that place of asking Jesus Christ into your life in not a religious way or a cognitive way, but in a dynamic way. It says, take my life. Take my life. Take every aspect of my life. And some of you may be even surprised that that stirring is in you because you, you signed the card, you raised your hand decades ago perhaps, but you're getting to the place where you're going, man, I don't know if I'm abiding in Christ. I don't know that. I don't know if I do have this relationship of perpetual dependence on Jesus. Well, this is what it means to be a Christian, and so some of you are ready to come to that place. And others of you, you know, this also it's the fulfillment of God's heart then to indwell us, then it's the fulfillment of his heart to fill us with the Holy Spirit. So this this is what it means to be a Christian, is to be born again and to be filled with his Spirit. There is no other kind of Christian. There is no other kind of Christian. You can't be a Christian without also being in dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit. The lack of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life should cause you cause you to run to God and say God fill me with your spirit confirm your presence in me so in just a moment we're going to have some people come up and, and uh, make themselves available to pray with you and if you're one of those people who would like to become a Christian you're ready you can just come up to them and you can tell them that and they'll pray with you and they'll share, share the message with you in a way that you can respond to they'll give you a new Bible they will come and tell me, right? Prayer people? <laughs> We're taking prisoners. I want to know every person who comes to Jesus. I want to know them. I want to pray for them. And also, if you're a person who says, I'd like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you can come up to these people and say that. I'll pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're a person who has something else going on in your life, some issue in your life that's just so huge, it's unrelated to anything I've said, but you said, I'd like to get prayer for that. That's what these people will be up here for. You can just come. So, Lord, we bow at this moment in our time together and have set aside a few minutes that we can come and respond to you in your amazing grace. You set a table for us, Lord, and not just of a a bread and a cup, but of your presence of the bread of the presence here among us now. And it's really that that we want to feast on this morning, Lord. And we thank you for your your relentless pursuit of us and the fulfillment of your heart for us. We thank you for not giving up. And we pray now in the dynamic presence of your Holy Spirit that you would stir in our hearts, each one, the response that will bring you the most glory, us the most health, and, uh, and Lord, embolden every person who wants to move their feet. Give them the courage and the capacity to move their feet and come for prayer. I break every chain that would hold them back. So come, Holy Spirit, and move among us in power and wonder and grace. In the name of your Son, Jesus.